And we are live. It is 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. It's Value After Hours. I'm joined by the regular crew, Jake Taylor and Bill Brewster. What's happening, fellas? Good to be back. Missed you guys last week, although Kyla did an admirable job, I thought, filling in. You don't have a chest. I can see mountains in your chest. That's right. Special effects on the show are off the chain. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Makes an Iron Man. I didn't realize that. I'm a half of one. And not just because I'm not the tallest guy. (laughs) I would have taken, I would have said yes, Jake's done on Iron Man. You would have taken that bet? Yeah. That's fair. Me, that would be much more shocking. (laughs) Especially since I would have done it and not known about it. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, uh, no done, done, done. Yeah, I'd have that in my Twitter profile if I'd done that. <laughs> Let the world know. Tell everybody. Well, it's, hap- my wife's done the full one, so I, I feel like a little, what's the point of me even saying anything at that point? <laughs> Did she push you in the little, in the little uh, trailer the whole way that dragged yeah, you in the trailer? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Although I will say that being a spectator of for someone and cheering for them on Iron Man is the absolute worst just sports as hard. experience. Just as hard. Well, you, what are you doing? You're just standing there, right? And well, no, you like, go. You try to go to different points along the course, right? Like you don't only see them for a second when they're swimming away and then maybe when they're swimming back and you see them in transition and then maybe you try to catch them a couple different points on the bike ride. And it's like, Oh, I've been waiting for 45 minutes in this spot that took me a really long time to get to because like the course is all closing down all the roads right in the area. And then you get there and you're waiting and waiting. Oh, and she rode by for 10 seconds. Hey, yeah, go. And then you don't see her again for another like hour. You go see her somewhere else. And then like the runs, the same thing. It's just, you get 12 hours of waiting around for about a cumulative minute and a half of actual, like seeing the person that you're cheering for. It's awful. Yeah. Well, that sounds like fun. There's been some uh, there's been some wild moves in the market since we we since we did our ultra bearish podcast two podcasts ago. We bottom ticked it. Yeah, we bottom ticked it. Yeah, and we've run up. Full like, it. We're basically back to all time highs again. Four percent down, man. S and P is a machine. Unbelievable. <laughs> I don't even know why I. I mean, I was writing somebody today. I was like, I honestly don't know outside of motivated reasoning and the fact that uh, I didn't say this, but I came up with this. The other than the fact that like my identity is somewhat as an active investor, I've been saying it for a while. I should just index. What if you just took like the top 10 names in spy and you you, like, and then just made that your full portfolio. Like that's a pretty good looking portfolio. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Or the top 30. What I was, I was always like, I was like, once growth, you know, has shits the bed, then boy, the S and P it's really got to watch out. Turns out it just kind of morphs and goes on about its business in a tax advantage manner. What history says though, you don't, the biggest names don't tend to stay the biggest and outperform like that. So you can't make a long-term bet on just the biggest names. I do wonder how useful history is for some of the like that 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 was this is this is one that Meb Faber has promoted a little bit that the biggest name has typically been the worst place to be because it tends to be the thing that is 
at the top of its like very long, it takes a lot of success to get there growth wise. I mean, fundamental wise, then you need overvaluation. And so it's a bad place to be. And when you look at the names that have been in there, it's been like, you know, um, uh, the oil Exxon, Exxon has done it a lot. I mean, probably the most egregious would be Nortel in Canada right. in the, when it was like in the 40% t- of the, the, the dot com boom. But now when you look at it, it's, I think Apple is the biggest name in there at the moment. And then there's Microsoft, Google. They're not egregious where they are. I, I'm telling you, man, I, I've been saying for a while, I got two years and I'm just going to eat the tax liability that I have to throw it in an index and go do something else. This, she is a bad, bad beast. Your golf game's going to get off the chain if you do that. I, I mean, I just don't know what I do. I, it's honestly half of why I, I'm not indexed. I don't, it's not a very good reason. I don't know. I'm going to have to fire myself soon. It's kind of sad. If someone presented you with it, I don't even know what the top 30, like I couldn't tell you what they are outside of the top sort of five or 10. If someone showed you their portfolio and they're just like, you know, so it's sort of like what Kathy Wood has done with NASDAQ is just to concentrate, like just to take the biggest names in the NASDAQ, just take the biggest names in SPY and say, yeah, that's my portfolio. People are like, wow, you you really know what you're doing. This is a great portfolio. <laughs> it worked for a while. For Kathy, but it's like I think it works in spy. It's, it would work now. Like you'd be your portfolio would look great. But mess around. I tell you, you called stuff. this Michael Green. He was on uh, spaces uh, in George Noble's space, and he was like, "You guys are too bearish. You just got to look at flows." He's like, "The flows are still coming in." And whoop. yeah, that that thesis uh, it hasn't been killed yet. <laughs> no, it's and not just that. It's. Uh, it turns out it's not actually all that vol- volatile either. Because the flows are so consistent. I mean, I just, I, you know, I don't know. Growth guys look super smart, and then they had a huge drawdown. Value is a factor underperformed for a while, and then it's got this run if you kind of were in the... Uh, ironically, I bet Price to Book had a really good uh, six months, right? After everybody said it was dead, because uh, it's probably commodity companies. Yeah, almost, that's right. Almost like we've talked about that. It outperformed. It outperformed going in. Like uh, Asnes, Cliff Astis pointed out that it was um, because it was the worst of the value factors. It did the best, went through the value yeah, factor. Drawdown. It was the least value-y. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know, man. S&P is a monster. It just doesn't stop. That's that's partly my topic today. I had this, I, I got asked to write an article on um, has the definition of value investing changed? And as I was putting it together, I, I always like to go back to those 1932 articles that Ben Graham wrote for Forbes. You know, he wrote those three when um, he was saying that the market was, there were, you know, there were like 600 public companies at the time or, or 600 in his universe and 200 of them were trading at a discount to their net current asset value, like their liquidating value. It's like the S&P 500 having most of them trading at a discount to liquidating value, like just almost unimaginable. And some 50 of them were trading at a discount to cash. And he, in there, and I've, I've missed this, I've read this article lots and lots of times, but in there he said, perhaps it's because there's all of these old time investors who spend too much time focusing on book values. <laughs> Pretty good luck. Uh, he is that. dead, 1932. <laughs> ben Graham said that in 1932. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I just kind of took it as, 
there are like I, I really think that the big the big difference in investors in the market is some people treat trends as cyclical and some people treat them as secular and, and you know various people treat different it's not not it's not monolithic on either side but I, I think that I think that there's a lot more cyclicality and a lot less secular and I think that that's probably that's 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 what I want to chat with you guys when when it's my turn and a little bit. And then we can talk about the inversion of the 210, which is like basis points away or a basis point away. Well, it's only predicted, what, 18 of the last 10? Well, here's the thing. So that what they, this, is, this is one thing I don't really get. Why, why we track the 10-2 the inversion when Cam Harvey's original formulation is the 10-year three-month. And the 10-year three-month is rocketing up, like the spread is going the other way. And the last time it looked like this was like early 2017, and it did call, it did it did call COVID, it did call the COVID crash. It was it was late 2019. It, it inverted, but it's nowhere near inversion. It's going the opposite direction right now. So that's my yeah. other topic when we get there. Hmm. What do you what do you got, JT? Uh, I have a segment on infinity that might be interesting. Big infinity or little infinity? Uh, probably medium. Me- medium. Medium infinity. infinity. <laughs> I was just going to talk about the S&P and then uh, I watched the Icon documentary, which I thought was pretty good. How is that? I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen it. I liked it. I mean, you know, I think it's it's like a Carl Icon marketing piece, but um, (laughs) there was some good stuff. I took some notes. So is he interviewed in it? Oh, yeah, man. He's he's interviewed like the whole way through. Hmm. Uh, He he sat down for a lot of it. I, I mean, the notes that I had on it, I, th- I think are kind of interesting. So like he uh, he got wiped out early in his career because he was, as he said, like playing the market in options. Or just, uh, just in no, whatever. no. Just like the market. I think he got caught up in like short term moves and whatnot. Then he actually got into options and started writing an options newsletter that was like, this is what you should have paid for your options. What year was and that? Then, like in the seventies at that point? Where are we in time? Uh, yeah, I think it was in the seventies. Okay. Um, and because of that newsletter, he got into brokerage, made a ton of money uh, as a broker, and then he started the activist stuff. You know, and uh, that would like that was in the I think the. Uh, late seventies, early eighties is when he started activism. And then TWA really was a really hurt him. Um, but then he obviously came back with uh, Netflix and Apple and Herbalife. Um, oh, lots of stuff in between there though, too, right? Everybody's yeah. Yeah. lose money in airlines, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was, yeah. And he tried to manage it, which was not good, but the quote that I liked, uh, you know, he said, you have to buy things when the world thinks you're a little crazy. Um, you know, that's a nice, a nice uh, quote. Some Finn Twitter popped in and said, "Oh, he's underperformed for five years." So shoot his <laughs> you can track record. Him. <laughs> yeah. Slide him off. Guy came from nothing and turned into a billionaire, but five years of underperformance. Uh, I guess some twenty-five-year-olds calling him dead. Yeah, fair enough. I I, at- in a non-account. I looked at okay uh, an, egg, an egg account called yeah. him when he's in his eighties. <laughs> Not gonna make it, Carl. Sorry, buddy. He must be almost 90, mustn't he? He must be very uh, I think 80s. he's 85. I think so. 
My wife didn't find him very likable at all. No, I said, you know what? He's not out there to impress you. That's my job. We were watching live very well. You know when Ackman was on and he dialed in and he was just bro, that was so fucking funny. I got to rewatch that. That's probably the best. Right. I like that. I I thought the end was, and I I am on the record as someone who likes Ackman. Uh, I I don't know that I study him deep enough to go out and say like I'm a true fan, but I I don't mind Ackman at all. Um, but man, when when Icon was like, I appreciate that you told me that I'm a good investor. I can't say the same about you. That shit is savage. <laughs> Shade. That's yeah, he's a savage. Savage. There've been a few articles written about him. He's, I don't think he sounds like a very nice guy. Like he was taking a shot at his taking a shot at Brett, his son. Was, you know, it's going to see how good his track record is. It's early days. Like, I think he was uh, just negotiating in public. I mean, Brett's the reason that that he's in, he was in uh, Netflix and Apple. Yeah. So hard to argue that uh, Brett has taken away from Carl's. I, I think Brett said uh, in the documentary it was nice to give. Like I think he said, I made my dad like five billion dollars, and that was nice. <laughs> Wait, my, my, my kids are really lazy then i guess yeah your kids aren't doing anything my kind's dad was a real dick um and i i thought it was interesting he said uh he said that his dad never asked him what he did for a living and then finally he went to see his dad when he was old like when his dad was old and his dad was like all right tell me what you do this is like well into icon's career and uh and like Carl was like, all right, you finally like acknowledge that I'm worth asking that question to. Uh, and he said, like, he still cries, like when he thinks about that. And they're like, well, why do you think you cry? And he couldn't articulate, like, because it's the only time my dad ever showed me any love. Like, it's pretty fucking obvious why he cries. Uh, but yeah, like his dad would say things to him like, um, you know, your mother and I have talent. You don't. So you should go be a doctor. Like he, he was just like a, a real matter of fact uh jerk it sounds like sorry carl if you're listening i'm not trying to talk badly on your dad it's one of those i can do it you can't type things i I assume but felt a little bad for him in that way kind of confirms that hypothesis about the to become that rich oftentimes there's some hole in your soul that you're trying to fill and maybe you do it through business success like you're I mean, there's a reason why there's so many super successful business people who are like orphans or they're, you know, didn't know their dad or had a rough relationship with their dad. Yeah. I remember looking at some research and that it was like uh, the entrepreneurs tended to have, yeah, a distant or, or no father and uh, had a stronger relationship with their mother. And I, I, I don't know what that, I don't know how that translates into the world, but maybe you just you, you, you every single person who you deal with is like a representation of your dad who you got to destroy. Well, and it, it's never enough, right? You have to keep going. Yeah. Can never just stop and be happy. Yeah. I had the wrong set of cards for this. I had it reversed. Mm. What does that manifest into? <laughs> a whole lot of problems and sitting on a couch for a long time. Yeah. Paying a hundred bucks an hour for a couch. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think I worked through most of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh, I think it's I think it's a documentary worth wa- watching. Um, you know, I'm I wish that uh, I wish it was like four or five hours, but I'm a long form nerd. But you know, there's more like there's there's a lot of more stories that I would love to hear. 
shocked that the guy with a three-hour podcast <laughs> laments the fact that the documentary only went for an hour. So yeah, they're they're not three. We're the, we're the they're last like two an hours. hour and a half. But yeah, no, I know. Well, the thing is, I I um like I would have loved to hear them talk about Blockbuster and how he kind of like snatched uh defeat from the jaws of victory there. Yeah. You know, but then to go out and buy Netflix after, like, that is gangster. Kill one company and go buy the beneficiary. Like, that's a beautiful thing to do. Yeah, that was the that was the one that I understood was was Brett's. But Apple was Netflix more, was was Brett's, yeah. Apple was, Apple was too traditional. Fair enough. But, but Apple it was, was Brett's idea. Einhorn was all over it at the same time. Because mm-hmm. I had the big cash pile and I was trading definitely cheap once you backed out the cash. Yeah, Brett brought the idea to Carl and, and Brett was like, once he saw the balance sheet, it was, he didn't even have to think. Mm. So, Buybacks too, probably. Well, they hadn't done any by that point. I know, but it was starting to probably become the next most obvious thing. Yeah, yeah I did, think they didn't uh, want to do it. the interesting insight was that, uh, well, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, his interpretation of the facts, Carl's, were that like he had Tim Cook over uh, for dinner and they were you like, you need Apple. to buy. Yeah, sorry. They were like, you need to buy in shares. And Tim Cook was not necessarily opposed to the idea. And Carl Icahn was like, I wonder, he never said it to me, but I kind of wonder if he was happy that I was there because the board was reluctant to do it. But I created like some of the pressure to uh gave him some cover to start doing it. Well, Einhorn was out there too. Einhorn was like the argument was if you do a buyback, you're admitting that you're no longer a growthy tech name. And Einhorn said, you know, doesn't the fact that you've got all this cash on the balance sheet already indicate that that is the case and not you're just sort of acknowledging reality? Yeah. Well, corporate inception. I think I, I bought think- like a 3% position in Apple then and sold it early. What a freaking idiot I am. <laughs> We Swing hard. Go from like a 10 PE to a 35. <laughs> Such an idiot. So why I should index. Yeah, then you'd well, have a big chunk of Apple still. Yeah, that's so right. 7% of your portfolio in Apple, something like that. Instead, I got it in Berkshire with a huge deferred tax liability. The thing about the index that's so beautiful is how it morphs and you don't pay taxes on the morph. Yeah. Like, man, that is hard to beat. It's that part that Buffett doesn't tell people when he says that people should index. Yeah. Well, a good ETF does the same thing, right? Yeah. Through Yes. That legal structure is a very smart legal structure to be in. Yeah. It's got some big benefits. Yeah. Need to create my own. Historically, it has been um, a bad thing to be structured the way that the index is structured, which is like, tending towards all the spires structured waiting. waiting towards yeah it's float adjusted market capitalization um has tended to underperform even equal weight and then you know there's another uh, etf out there reverse rvrs which is takes the inverse of the of the market cap weighting which should outperform equal weight as well it's just we, we've been through a really funny long period of time in the market where it hasn't been driven by fundamentals it's been more driven by size and momentum. What was that ticker? RVRS? Yeah, I don't know if it's... It, it was a Philbox, Philbox ETF RVRS. Um, huh. I think it's still going. I haven't heard. Almost like dogs of the Dow in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
just waiting to us. And it, you know, it should work. It's just it's it's going to be size constrained at some point. Just because- we're we're post history. Yeah, nothing, it's, nothing yeah, historical from, will tell you anything about what what would work. <laughs> yeah, Let's see, from that happens. Seventeen. Yeah, it looks like it's underperformed by four four percent per year. Well, I don't know if it goes back right. further. Well, we've been through that period. We've been through that really wacky time period. That that you know, yeah. Equal weight, run it against the equal weight S and P spy equal weight, whatever that is. Well, I don't know what that ticker is, dude. <laughs> I think, yeah, I don't either. Nothing like doing research on the fly in the middle. Hang of the on, show. hang That's on, really hang on. We can do ri- this. Riveting. <laughs> uh, equal weight has, uh, looks like it's annualized since 2013. Uh, September 3rd. I don't know why I started there. I just did. So sorry. Uh, annualized reverse has done 12.7%. S&P has done 149 and uh, the equal weight has done 13.3. Yeah, so equal weight's underperformed over the period right too. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Those there are still go. good numbers though. Like if to be an owner of a business and to be paid for that as a capital provider is a very reasonable outcome. It's not, even, an ind- it's not even a business though. It's a diversified index of the best businesses in the world that the morphs in a tax-advantaged way. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason and why you're still doing up. 13%. Well, I'm getting like those. Did you watch any of the NCAA tournament and see those stupid QQQ commercials over and over again? Yeah. Oh, I'm an owner of the... <laughs> where they We're doing spatial measurement. Oh, okay. That's what you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, they got those QQQs. Had a, had a uh, two point four inch higher release point. Purchase climbing up fourteen point three four percent versus fourteen point eight eight on the index. Who is from my starting point? Berkshire, the buff dog. Yeah, am I the, I think I like G. I'm kind of the only one left who is sad to see it going up like this. As one of the owners, taking those buybacks off the table, I just, I don't like it. Q's have done 21.4%. Oh, that's how you get an NCAA commercial. <laughs> With a huge drawdown, right? Like this, this last little growth pocket was my, oh, well, growth when growth slows down, boy, the it's Q's over. are in trouble. Turns out not at all. Yeah, I look at the Q's, um, the internal engine there, like I look at the, the reinvestment rate, like it's, it's, it's a very, very high number. I forget what it is off the top of my head. Like you're paying a big premium multiple for it, but the, the engine room is is strong. Yeah. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if it keeps on doing well for a long period of time. Actually, the spy is in the same. The spy, the engine room in the spy is pretty healthy too. I think it could be like, I don't know. I don't want to put a number on it, but I think that the expected return in there is something like 17%. It's got a high multiple, so that might contract, but the underlying business growth is high. What's... My bold call is U.S. small cap does well, as does as of like a week ago. I would have said European value, but that's probably all bounced back already. You missed it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Quick trigger finger. You got to have it. Uh, what is that ROIC? That I assume that's a big part of what you're talking about right now. And like, does that? What do you assume that profit margins are in this engine room? Yeah, that's a fair question. I I am not adjusting for that down. 
So there's no adjust. So the, this is this is this is this is a no mean reversion model. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm. So I'm trying to like take the multiples out of it and just look at it without the mean reversion in there. So I'm just looking at the reinvestment rate. It's literally the payout ratio, one minus the payout ratio times the reinvestment rate plus whatever the payout ratio, the shareholder yield sums to. And I was shocked at how high it was for both SPY and for the Qs. You're paying a premium multiple for the Qs, but you know, there's an argument to be made that it's worth it. And if it doesn't have any of that mean reversion, then it's going to keep on going for a long time. I still too. think they're playing a rational game. Like if, look, I don't know that it's a rational game for the minority shareholders on the outside of the company. That That is fine to debate. But at this point, I think if we're saying it's not, the onus is on the people that say it's not because it has kicked the shit out of me for a long time. So uh, I'm not the one to listen to. But if you were to say to me, well, Money's going to tighten and it's going to be tougher. Like all that, all that that says to me is that it, the barriers to entry are getting higher and it makes it even more important to chase as much scale as humanly possible when conditions are loose. Yeah. Because if rates are 6%, good luck getting billions of dollars of funding to go out and compete with these guys. I think you'd be I okay think. at six, but I think north of six, like six is the long run average and we've done pretty well at six. But yeah, I take your point. It's it's much much t- that's tighter than where it is now, considerably yeah. tighter. And multiples will come in if that happens substantially. Yeah. I don't think it will though, because what what is a developed world economy with rates at six? What's a fair PE? Well, no, just like what's an example of one? Like well, all, I mean, it's you got to look historically. You got to look historically. Historically, yeah. that's been quite common. I mean, that's the I, average. But I think the issue now is we're just like a wash in capital. By virtue of investment, uh, central banks just yeah. pumping it out cons- constantly. So then you got to make me buy the argument that central banks may stop, which well, I don't is think a tough will. one to sell me on. <laughs> There's no chance that they stop. Yeah. So that's why I kind of can't get myself to higher rates sustainably. But that's, uh, that's been I wrong just, recently. But I think that the, the, the central banks... Default setting is lower interest rates and lots of money supply. And the only reason that they ever reverse course is because there's a gun to their head. And that gun is inflation. Like, I'm amazed at the moment that the central bank is so deft at pretending like there's no inflation. Like, you, you just got, you got the stock market at a record high. The property market is like Ooh. white hot. Consumer price index is running like 7.9% last time we took a look. And they're just like, yeah. Bonds, we're, even still. Bonds. We're really crossing our fingers for some inflation. We're hoping to find some soon. Still can't find any. Not, <laughs> not able to find any signs. We've got, like, we've got a room full of PhDs here. We've got it? hundreds of them on out. Can't, can't find it. Is that what they said? I thought they said that. Uh, I mean, they're saying that. Transitory. Rates. <laughs> oh, they, they, they've been saying that for a long time. They, they've been saying that for like 10 years. Have a look at the yeah. dot plots. Everything's been saying we're going to have higher rates. Yeah. Just a little bit later. Not, not just yet. Just down the road. Lots of rate hikes coming. Not yet. But I they're think tr- they're actually doing it. chased, now. but not oh, yet. We, we'll give you, yeah. But like, we, I don't we, even. 25 bips. I need to figure out. I mean, this is a question I have, and I just haven't done the work to figure it out. But like, when does Biden's spending plan, like, when does the capital start coming out in that plan? Because we got, don't we have like still a bunch of infrastructure spending and stuff on the comp? Always. 
<laughs> no, but I, I mean like, uh, but I mean like a real package still coming, not like, oh, always. I mean like substantially more. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't followed it closely enough. This will be good. This will be a good tie-in for my infinity. Let's do that. Let's do infinity. Okay. Might need to start pumping the melt up again. To infinity. Yeah. So uh, first things first, this to tie in with infinity. uh, I, I went on Jim O'Shaughnessy's podcast, which is called infinite loops. And I had a little, did a little segment um, and that came out. Was it last week or the week before? So go check that out. If you want to, hear me in a different format, which was kind of fun. I thought it, I thought it went pretty well, actually. Um, but most of what I'm going to be talking about today is from this book called Beyond Infinity, which is by Eugenia Chang. She's a mathematician professor. And uh, also what sparked us a little bit is, uh, as, as I do, listening back through Buffett and uh, Munger and the AGMs for Berkshire and I'm in 2004 again, and he's talking about uh, someone asks him about R minus G and what happens when you end up with this, you know, this growth rate that is way up, even anything above your discount rate forever. And now you go to infinity. And he's talking again about uh, the St. Petersburg paradox and uh, Durant, who did a piece about it that Buffett knew about. And uh, we had talked about this on the show in season three, episode two. So if you want to go back and explore that, that's one spot. Um, but what, there's some weird stuff about infinity that that is kind of hard to wrap your mind around other than just that something like could go on forever, theoretically. But like there's some weird math things that happen with infinity. So, for instance, let's say that you have infinity and then you add one to infinity. Does that equal then infinity? Like is what infinity plus one equal infinity. Well, if we subtract infinity from both sides of that equation, you end up with one equals zero. Okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like that's a mathematical, you know, foobar. How about infinity plus infinity equaling infinity? Well, if you divide both sides of infinity in that case, you end up with two equals one. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all either, right? Uh, how about infinity times infinity equaling infinity? Well, again, divide both sides being by infinity and you end up with infinity equals one. Okay, like, like totally nonsensical. So what this tells us is that infinity is not an ordinary number that you can use typical sort of equations on. Um, and it took mathematicians actually like thousands of years to kind of wrap their minds around this and, and the invention of set theory and calculus actually to, to, to get a little bit better understanding about what's happening with infinity. So there's this idea called Hilbert's hotel. It's by this mathematician named David Hilbert. And so imagine a hotel with infinite number of rooms, like, you know, just going off into infinity, this, and they're all labeled, you know, one, two, three, four, five, counting all the way up. Now imagine that every single room is full in Hilbert's hotel. What, and a new guest shows up. What, how can we get them into this hotel? What do you do? Well, Hilbert's idea is that you can't put them at the end into a new room because like infinity just keeps going on forever and we can't find the end of it. But what you can do is shift them all up one. So take every person and say, okay, you're in room one, go to room two. Room two, you go to room three, three to four, ad infinitum, right? So N plus one basically to this whole whole equation. Well, 
what happens then when the next guest shows up? Okay, well, we need to like shift everyone again now to the next room. And you end up with basically everyone having to keep moving up by a room as you add more. And I would posit that it's possible that we are sort of living in a monetary Hilbert Hotel in that whatever the latest problem to show up, which would sort of be a guest in this instance, what do we do with it? Oh, we have to print money to throw it at this problem. And we have to shift everyone. Everyone needs to go change rooms and move up a room so that we can put these people into room number one. And, you know, oh, COVID hit. Okay, time to like shift everybody off, right? Like we need everyone to move. And by the way, the people who are closest to room number one are the ones who get the most benefit out of it, right? This is the Cantillion effects where whoever gets the money first gets to go buy things with it at the original price level versus by the time it gets all the way out to room infinity, well, good luck. It's pretty much watered down at that point. And that's what inflation looks like for you, right? So um, all, all of which is to say that money is not neutral. It has, there's winners and losers when it comes to shifting everyone on this in this Hilbert hotel. Uh, so, there's an, uh, the next idea then is uh, this idea called Zeno's paradox. And this is from 2,500 years ago. And so imagine that you're, you're covering a distance. You're going from point A to point B. And you know in half that time, you're going to be halfway in between A and B. And then in another half of that, you're going to be you know a quarter of the way done. And then you go another half and you're an eighth of the way done. And if you keep going half and half and half and half to infinity, you never actually get to where you're going, right? It's like always adding up to this smaller and smaller amount of distance that we have to cover. So how do we get that infinite distance? Yet we know that we go places all the time. We get from A to B, yet Zeno's paradox would say that you can never get from A to B. So what the hell's going on there? Well, I mean, this is kind of what happens when you take anything with one divided by infinity. You end up with, oddly enough, an, an infinite number that is going, but yet, Makes it's nonsensical, right? So it becomes absurd because the distance is less than, like, at some point, the distance is less than like the size of your toe. And, like, so what does that even mean? <laughs> okay, so this is where we get into calculus. And the key is, is how long does it take to do each stage of those things? And so, you know, you're going the same speed throughout going from A to B. And each stage then takes half the amount of time as well as what. So, you know, with an infinite number of stages, uh, the time that gets spent on each stage gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So the total time actually then becomes a finite number. Um, so it's kind of a interesting thing. Like it took mathematicians 2,500 years to solve this, this, this paradox. Uh, last couple things in this uh, that I thought were just kind of interesting little like tidbits. Uh, when it comes to uh, binary, if you had seven candles on a birthday, and you use binary to, to express it, you could actually like go up to the age 128 candles. So maybe if you want to like, if you have a really nerdy friend, that might be a fun thing for you to do is someday is put their candles in binary. Uh, in fact, when I'm 80 years old, I encourage you guys to get me a cake and uh, put it in binary. And I'll think that's funny. Uh, how many, how many candles is that? Seven candles can express up oh, to 128 in the, in the binary. You just got to turn some off and turn some on. Right. And even more impressive that you can actually count up to 1,023 on your fingers if you do it in binary. And there's, you know, all these different, you know, they mean different things, but uh, 
that's pretty impressive to me. I don't know if anybody can actually keep track of it, but of course a computer can very easily do it. But, uh, and the last thing about this book that was just kind of interesting was it, it taught me more about like what real numbers are, uh, what normal numbers, rational, irrational, uh, and this idea called the axiom of choice, all this stuff kind of hard to explain in a podcast. It's supposed to be fun. So I'm not going to bog us down with it, but, uh, I enjoyed actually like, it's sort of a dorky book. Actually, like she tells a lot of stories about her, <laughs> like little like math things from her life, like about baking and stuff, but they're actually, it's kind of interesting. And I, maybe it's just, I'm a dork, but uh, I think it's fun to, to read about weird math problems that come out from infinity. So uh, yeah, there's a little segment on some fun trivia for you guys. What's the book called? Uh, Beyond infinity. Have you ever oh, heard good. of the Monty Hall problem? I have. I spent some time on that. Yeah, that's a mind F. Didn't we do that on the program at one point? Which one's the multi hole problem? You got three doors. All right. Two doors have a goat, one has a car. You know, so the host, after you pick door one, opens door three and it's a goat. Should you switch your initial pick? Yeah, the answer is you should always switch. Yeah. What's the probability that, that you're right by switching? Because you get to adopt your your untrained probability is one in three, but you get to take advantage of their additional knowledge because they by opening up one of the doors they have to they're only going to open a door that has a goat behind it. So you've now you can take their probability by switching. So it's either the door that you're on or the other door. So it becomes fifty fifty. It's actually two thirds. Two thirds. Yeah, that's so because the be, you're correct in an, in a series of independent random events, but because the goat open is dependent upon the host's knowledge, it's actually two thirds of the time. So you get their probability. That's right. You get their probability. So yours uh, is one and three, and theirs is two and three. That's good. I was sitting there. I was a little high. I was trying to figure that out. I was <laughs> like, you're fucking kidding me. <laughs> Some of the like, best part of that too. Is the, uh, I had to wake up in the morning and reread it. And I was like, oh, now I get it. They had um, like some women mathematicians wrote in about that. And then like just the misogynistic responses about like, go back to being a secretary, uh, like from like actual real sort of scientists who did not get the problem. Right. I mean, it just yeah. really reveals some some of our biases. Well, a lot of scientists didn't get it. Like a no. lot of people were like, this is BS. And it turned out to be true. Yeah. So. Um, total non secretary, total change of direction here, but we've got to mention this. Charlie stepped down as DJ Co chair. I think he might still be on the board. Still and on he's the board. Donated his stock or donated $1 million of stock. Yeah. I love it. To what a, a monster. To like a, a huge leverage, a margin employee. position on Baba, and then say, I'm incapable of still continuing at this company. Cool. I think he's still running the portfolio, though, as part of his duties as director. Yeah. That's my understanding. <laughs> Does anybody well, know anything about the this new guy that's taking over? He's apparently a tech guy, so that's good. Not 87 years old. Yeah. Like Salzman, so that might be something. No, I don't know anything. I, um, I don't know. I know that Tyler chair? Technologies has uh, probably doubled sales since Charlie said that they were a terrible company and easy to compete against. And daily journal has 
both leverage. <laughs> Does the math <laughs> not? Yeah, Tyler's expensive, but it's definitely a good company. Yeah, they're monsters. But a- you do have a lot of multiple potential fade. Yeah. Are we back on QQQ? <laughs> Sorry. No, Tyler's Tyler is uh, a lot more than that. Uh, I, I think Tyler Tyler usually trades at a very very tight cap rate. Yeah, it's never got close to hitting distance. The only thing that I've been tracking for a little while that started, you know, not not didn't quite get there, but is looking interesting. Was shop shop was still starting to get into. Oh yeah, but not get some Toby. Not yet, fellow Toby. I yeah, thought about yeah. buying some of that just as factor exposure, but then I was like, I should just buy some ETF, but I don't even know what ETF to buy. But the, I, man, seeing stuff trade all in tandem, this is all just one big factor, but everybody else just the, the can't it's admit it's just like masturbating over how smart they are. Yeah, it is. It is weird how much that, huh? the factor yeah. moves are. It is yeah. weird. I, w- I watch it all the time. Like I just, I, I watch some weird move happen and I go and look at all of my peers and I'm like, how about that? We're all doing the same thing. Nobody's yeah, the whole group moves work. in tandem. Just... <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm out here reading expert calls like an idiot trying to figure out some insight. Well, that might provide, like, here's the, there's the argument for that too, that you could find something that, like they are all moving in tandem and they shouldn't be. Maybe. I just, I, I don't know that it matters anymore. I, I mean, that's maybe something silly but to it, say. But... but it does because ultimately what you're buying is a stream of cash flows. So you you can you just have to sit there and wait until it comes into your hitting zone, and then the way it trades after you own, you don't care. Yeah. Wrong, wrong. I'm just <laughs> buying. I'm just front running the next flow behind me. I mean, look, I I don't disagree with the theory. I think the theory is theoretically correct, as Yogi Berra says. Though practice. there there's uh, no difference between theory and practice in theory, but in practice there is. But I think that that's, I think that that's very practical. Like that's my, after the longer I do it, the more I think that that's actually really true. And I sort of think that there's two things that you can do in the market. You can either buy things that are really, really undervalued. And basically you don't pay for the equity because you're getting all balance sheet value, getting cash and other stuff in there. Or you find stuff that's really, really good where you're not, again, you're sort of trying to get the optionality for free. And either of those two things work really well. That's kind of what I try to do. I try to get both. I'm just, I just want optionality in the portfolio. And then the thing about optionality is it's, it takes, there's some randomness in it. Like you don't know when it's going to hit, but ultimately you're still holding these things that are printing money and buying back stock and growing and doing all the right stuff. You have your time, your moment comes. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, that's how I invest. I'm just not sure I believe in it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to believe it sometimes when you, you're doing the right thing and it's just running against you for years. Start thinking that you might be nuts. It's a mental game. It's all a mental game. I mean, you know, I guess the reason I don't want to index is I was really happy when my friends were chewing Zin, you know, this week and I'm talking to them and they're like, I was like, oh, you ever try on? And they're like, I hate on. Yeah, (laughs) fuck yeah. Buy more Zin. (laughs) I like that stuff. There's this same problem though exists in that flows dominate, right? Like that's sort of what we're saying at the moment. But that that same thing works on the other way too. There will be a top point where you're like, my God, this business is amazing. Why does it just keep going down day after day after day? It just doesn't make any sense. The fundamentals support a much higher price from here. Well, that's the flows argument going the other direction. So we only hit the right price on the elevator up and down. So you just have to know kind of where you are and and you know play play your game. 
I still think that it's the better, like the more distortion there is in the market, the better it is. The, the flows argument, you know, I'm, I'm still not entirely on board with it, but even if it is the case, then I love it. Let's, let's do that. Let's, let's make sure some things are massively overvalued and some things are massively undervalued. I don't care if it doesn't necessarily show up in portfolio performance in the near term because I'm, I'm not trying to buy future performance. I'm trying to buy businesses that print cash flow and, and do stuff. Just need to make sure the agency costs aren't there. Yeah, that's, what I mean, mean, that's, that? what does that mean? I mean, there's a lot of cheap stuff that's just there to enrich management and they suck the stuff okay. out and you get this cash on the balance sheet and you're never going to see it. And it's just like in some glass box. Mm. It's not, you know, that's not like, like I always, I, I always have an issue when, uh, like, I don't know. Facebook was a good example before they were doing their fight, their buyback. Right. It's like, well, look at all the cash. And it's like, okay, well, that's yeah. just Zuckerberg's play chest. Like that's not yours. You're just along for the ride. And turns out, you know, he's going to spend a hundred billion dollars on something that people, well, thinks he's going to that a lot of people don't agree with, right? So it's like they're doing some think, buybacks. Uh, to, to what? Be fair. They're doing some. Yeah. Buybacks well, too. I think that I think it's changed a little bit. And so I actually kind of a, a fun game that, that don't have ben, the same aversion. Ben Graham used to play with his acolytes, where they would do little puzzles like this, and one of them was imagine this company as a black box that the cash will never come out of. And that's, we're assuming that like up, up front, what is it worth then? What like would you nothing. pay for that price? Well, but yet there's probably that's a trading sardine because if the cash is never going to come back to you, you're just hoping somebody pays you more down the road. And then you're saying like, in theory, it should be worth this. So how much of these businesses are, these sort of black boxes and how much are actually you're ever going to see that return on capital and who's, who's playing what game. This is why I actually like buybacks because even though they're inefficient, they, they distribute cash back to shareholders. It's also a good signal. Like if they're doing it at a discount, but you're, that you're, we're slightly, we're slightly, we're slightly messing with Jake's, uh, Jake's, hypothetical here i can't i can't figure my way through that hypothetical because i think that the answer is probably that it's not worth anything if it never comes out but yeah. then there's no company that's actually like that right like you, they are gonna even if they if they come to an end they liquidate and then you get some of it back unless it's all consumed by the agency costs yeah it's worth a lot to management it's probably worth 20 million a year the ceo i mean i've, I've had a bet on meta um the the, the thesis for Meta is pretty simple from my perspective. That the, the fundamentally, quantitatively, it's mispriced. And I don't know whether what the future holds for it. Like it may very well be that, you know, the reservations that Bill's expressed at various different points. And I know you're long too. I'm not trying to say that you're not long. Yeah. The reservations that you've expressed may very well be the end for for Meta. It's just that I think it's it's just there's so much cash, there's so much cash flow. It's still Mark Zuckerberg who knows what he's doing. It's still right in the ecosystem of like a lot of advertisers. There's a reasonably good chance that that it works, and it's you're getting the right valuation here. And I think if you do this with all these sorts of positions, it works out okay, even if it doesn't work out in Facebook's instance. But I think it does over time, in aggregate, on average. I mean, I've recently thought about selling Google to buy it, so I think it's cheap. I think Google's pretty cheap, though, isn't it? Well, that's, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, and I got taxes. I, I don't want to deal with that, but I, I think Facebook's cheap. 
I thought, you know, Google almost traded at $2,500 through that whole thing. Like it had three runs at it where it got down to like $2,530. And I think every single person in the world was sitting there on $2,500. Ready to hit the bed. Yeah. So it just wouldn't trade at the round number, which is, you know, that's, I already know that that lesson. I don't need to learn it again. I'll learn it again. <laughs> don't try and buy it round numbers. But there you go. But it could easily, then again, you know, if I'd, if I'd have put it at 2530, it'd have traded at 2100. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have that as well. I thought Apple was interesting at 100, like you got Apple at 150, Google at 2500. Things got pretty good value through that little, that little suck down there. Didn't quite get there though. It's only 15% off the top and then rocket back. It was like it 10% in a week. What was that? We retested the highs. Yeah, yeah. So we we but we just don't know, right? It could it could be a melt up, could be a meltdown, could be just business as usual. Who knows? It will I'm glad I didn't take exposure off when I cried. I didn't add any, but I didn't take any off. And I that thought was... you had leaps up your out the ass when you were crying. No. Oh. I was looking at them. There's just way too much volatility. It was hard to get hard to get in anywhere. I didn't want to sell anything. I didn't want to sell any vol. I, yeah, I just don't understand options well enough to really mess with them. And I know that. Well, you wait for a split, and then you can buy more of them, and then <laughs> nah, it goes that's up, a good point. And that's, that's how, how works. that's how you win. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, that was funny that Tesla. You you pointed this out to me, JT. You should probably talk about it. Oh, it was. Well, just my little grinchy part of me, but I, uh, <laughs> I sent Toby just a, it was just a screen cap of two articles about Tesla that were next to each other in like, you know, Apple's uh, stocks thing. And one of them said stock split about Tesla, it's rocketing. And then the, the other one said like Shanghai plant closing due to COVID uh, concerns. And I'm like, okay, well, you could see which one of these is driving Tesla's price. And it's the, the fact that we can, punt a little harder now because the stock split's going to allow us to to get in more options play versus, oh, wait, the business actually uh, closing down a key facility for a while, even if it opens back up, at least it's like pushing out production for a while. Uh, it's just... I mean, maybe the argument is the macro picture looks more stable now. So the long duration, I, I don't know. I, I tell you what, if these commodity guys are right, it's going to be interesting to see how expensive electron, uh, you know, electric vehicles get. And I don't necessarily think the commodity guys are wrong. I'm not sure I want to go out and buy commodity stocks here, but like there is a lot of tightness and there are a lot of smart people that are out there saying that we can't possibly produce these things. So, you know, I get that like people want to wish that we can, like that's a nice world to be like, oh no, we'll figure it out, but we still need to figure it out. There's, so, there's still so many weird holes in the supply chains. I saw one today that the, uh, they're having trouble producing fire hydrants because they're missing mm-hmm. some component to the fire hydrant. I was talking to the dude that- <laughs> Is it or red a paint? Dude. <laughs> <laughs> Might be. I talking to a guy here. that's opening uh, Bobby Flays and the issue that they're having, like I was looking at wholesale inventories and they're, they look like they're at normal levels. But I wish you could drill down into finished goods versus uh, raw materials and whip uh, because what he said happened is like the, they're waiting on a lot of refrigerators, 
But like, so all the raw material is at the refrigerator manufacturer, but the refrigerator manufacturer only has so many machines dedicated to stamping out these refrigerators. And they're like, there's no way we're going to buy six more machines for 12 months of demand so that then we have equipment that's worth nothing. If you want it, you pay to to get it now. Uh, And I just kind of wonder how much of like the, the actual inventory is just like raw material build. I don't know how it's calculated. Imagine with all of those variables moving around all over the place every single day, thinking that you know what the right amount of money to provide to this whole thing should be. (laughs) Just imagine the hubris it takes. There's a building full of PhDs there, sir. They have got this figured out. It's it's all dialed in. Because as, as Bill pointed out earlier, like, just going and studying for a PhD in economics is just the same thing as running a business. That's right. Yes. Practically. Practically. And figuring out how the whole economy will respond. And theoretically right is after all more right than practically right. Because you can be be wrong in instances, but as long as the theory remains sound, then the theory is sound. That's as good as money, sir. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're wrong with everybody at the same time, that helps. It's a bummer. I, I really want I really want cheap electric cars, so I don't yeah. have to go and fill up at the gas station because that's a bummer. That's a pain. I mean, you gotta you gotta pay for them to get charged, man. Nothing's free. It's just the hassle of going to the gas station. I, I just want to plug it in at home. Yeah, that's That'd so much nice. more efficient. That'd be nice. I think we'll get there as a species, but we just have to. Hang in there for a while, I guess. I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't like the idea of not necessarily owning the car. Like, just the Uber, I think, is a great idea. Like, it's, it's tough when you got kids because you got to put car seats in the back of the car. But if I had, if I didn't have kids and I didn't have to stick them in the car seats, then I'd be happy. Like, just send me my electric, my electric Uber with no driver, and um, just stop going anywhere. That's the answer. <laughs> uh, I know somebody who has a Tesla that eat your lentils at home like a good boy. <laughs> eat your bugs. Eat your bugs. Yeah. I mean, this dude's not afraid to drink because he's like, the car is driving me home. Now, whether or not that sound is I don't a whole think nother that will issue, pass but... legal muster. <laughs> well, you got to get pulled over first, but I don't, I don't, uh, I don't deny that it's not a very good strategy. It's not you sound. See that, that video, that Tesla jumping. <laughs> that yeah, that guy's shit. an idiot. <laughs> was someone actually in that car? Yeah, and then he fucking put it on YouTube like a moron. That's funny. I thought it was pretty cool. Myself. It's an appreciating asset. I watched it like 10 times. In a, just, whoa, look at the air. <laughs> yeah, he could have killed somebody. Do you guys want a little NFT update? You know, I check in yes. every, I yes, check in every week on the Google. So it's bounced a little bit. I, 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 um, it's, it's, I got as low as 27. I think it was up to 28 last time I looked. So there may be a short-term um, bounce in, 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 in the NFT market. So I don't know. I haven't, I haven't performed any moving averages on it, but you, what is that? What's that measured in? Rembrandt's? What? How do you? <laughs> I guess it's Google's attempt. Like Google's know, very squirrely about how they actually what they're actually of, telling you there. Yeah. It's it's indexed to its highest number, I guess. So if hundred is the highest number, at 27, 28. I'm gonna I'm gonna be. It's gonna be like one of those Paul Krugman things where they when he says the internet will be no more significant than the fax machine. That'll just come back to haunt me forever. But I still don't think that you want to be going and holding a lot of crypto punks just here. Two cents. Uh, the board apes got a big distribution. They're very excited as a community. What does that mean? What, what, yeah, what does that mean? I don't know. I, I saw that as well. I saw some guy rented a couple of board apes out and he clipped like $1.3 million in Ethereum. 
and then he yeah got, and then he lent them back or he gave them back yeah i don't i mean i don't really know but i know that it happened because i heard from my friend who owns one he was like i told you you should have bought this like, and now do you get like a is it like a pick where you get paid in more apes no it was <laughs> a, it was some di- it was some distribution that that was uh marketable so i think yes i think you have to sell it but uh there was a market for it i think there's a good question here um what happens to scratch tickets and cigarette sales with no gas stations now someone's thinking about the second order consequences Ooh, the like third order. yeah so do that, I. that will get you nowhere in this market <laughs> sir <laughs> that's too much thought well, I'm not sure the convenience stores have to go away. Yeah, that's true. Is that is that the main vent? Like, what's the like? Uh, cigarettes are going to be okay because people who are addicted to cigarettes yeah, are going to find gonna a way to get Jones their cigarettes. Stop. Yeah. What about the scratch scratchy tickets? The scratchies. I think people will probably figure out a way to get their lotto tickets too. Yeah. Well, probably yeah, some some tech person will probably figure out a way to deliver it directly to your phone and yeah, wouldn't that sell be more? And they'll call that reducing friction. That's that's a billionaire. NFT scratchies. Link that right to UBI. And you, yeah, you got the whole, right. whole world figured out. Can't go wrong. It's pretty much Robin Hood. <laughs> Ouch. I think we've run out of stuff to say. You guys uh, got anything? Unbelievable. But no more questions? I'm sure there's some question here. I don't think uh, I do. What about Red Bull? I think Red Bull's going to be okay. What happened to him? Yeah. Well, I guess that's where I'm, I, I think that Red Bull is bought by 21 year olds in, in clubs, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Oof. Do you guys watch Drive to Survive this year? If F1? I didn't. I need to. I'm going to the Miami race. Dude, hats off to. It's not Miami. Hats off to Liberty for like buying F1 and then pumping out that, pumping out that, uh, all that content, like figuring out that it's an entertainment content business, getting that Netflix show, like viewership's up. Bernie Evers used to say that, they used to say, you know, well, no, no young people watch F1. And he said, I don't care. I want rich 70-year-olds watching it. But it turns out- Bernie Evers of it. like WorldCom? Uh, is it Eberhard? Who was, who, was the, who was the guy who owned- Oh, Eccleston. Sorry, I've, yeah. I've mangled that one. Who, yeah, who, owned, no, but- who owned F1? Who sold F1? I think that was his name. Uh, it was Ecclestone. Ecclestone, but- sorry. Okay. I, I no, it didn't mean any information. Yeah, it was at Colston. <laughs> yeah, he just ran it. I think I heard that he ran it out of like his house. It was like a room in his house. How hard could it be? <laughs> Let's throw together. Some I mean, we're races. able to put put out some premium content from a couple of rooms and houses. That that F one, uh, whoever is the producer or the writer for that show, or that's just absolutely genius the way that they pick up those storylines and they'll make one guy the bad guy and then you just tune in the next week and that guy's the good guy and you're just like yeah this is this all makes complete sense to me it's okay. like wrestling it's yeah, brilliant it is wrestling yeah it's so good if only it's, the cars were evenly matched it's just that the actual f1 is so fucking boring they just keep going round and round and round i'm like it's where's terrible the, to where's watch. the commentary it's terrible so it's, it's why nascar man american sport with the same equipment, Rubbin's racing. You have been in Florida for a while, haven't you? Yeah, I don't watch NASCAR. Oh. I did for a bit. I was a Denny Hamlin fan. I like that black FedEx car. Yeah, UFC's where it's at, mate. Hamzat Shemayev. Get on, get on Hamzat early. 